ruined conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. This week on the Project Censored Show, Eleanor Goldfield sits down with former leader of the Feminist Initiative Party in Sweden, Farida Al-Abani, to discuss the supposedly neutral country's militaristic tendencies, from the push to join NATO to being one of the world's largest weapons exporters. Al-Abani shares her personal experience with NATO as a Libyan as well as her struggles for peace in the din of war drums. Later in the program, I sat down and talked with attorney and author Charlotte Dennett about her latest book, Follow the Pipelines, uncovering the mystery of a lost spy and the deadly politics of the great game for oil. Dennett notes how significant wars of the 20th and 21st century were and are still driven by oil and energy politics right up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Stay tuned. To the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufacture pay for why. Taxing all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. In the times for the master thief. Goodbye and conquer, steal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fiend at the table. Then you probably own the menu. Thank you so much for listening to Project Censored Radio. We are very excited to be joined currently by Farida Alabani, who's the former leader of the Feminist Initiative in Sweden and works as a secretary general of a public health organization in Sweden. She also has a long background in the civil society in Sweden within different organizations. Farida, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I wanted to first off get some context because Sweden is certainly not something that comes up in conversation in the U.S., that often. And NATO is sadly not at either something that comes mm. up in conversation. So could you give us some context with regards to Sweden's relationship to NATO in years before this current push to join? Sweden actually has a quite long relationship with NATO since the Cold War, I'd say, since they're also in relation with NATO from way back, I think it's from 1994 something that's called like the, I think it's called the Participation for Peace, which is like a part of NATO. And it's, it's something that Sweden has been a part of since yeah 1994, uh, meaning we haven't really been a neutral country since then. A lot of people usually say that the Sweden hasn't been a neutral country since the Cold War. Also, we've signed an agreement uh, that we in Sweden called Badlandsavtalet. Uh, I think it's in English, it's called the uh, Memorandum of Understanding. So I think since 2014, we signed that, which means that we have military operations, that we military exercise in Sweden more often than we've had before, that we were also a part of different military actions that NATO has. For instance, we were part of, of that military exercise that were happening in, in Libya. So it's a quite a long relationship. And NATO usually says that Sweden is one of their most active non-NATO members. It's basically yeah. like you're a member without being a member. Exactly. You mentioned the claim of neutrality, which is something that Sweden enjoys claiming and has for the past 200 years, even though it's not been neutral. And mm. there's another side of this, which is also that Sweden is a large uh, manufacturer and exporter of weapons. How do you see this relating to the current stance that Sweden has? 
the weapon industry is quite big one, uh, as you mentioned, and it's 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 I mean it's mentioned now from Turkey that is raising the question of Turkey that's a NATO country is saying that well it's not fair that Sweden doesn't want to sell the weapons to, to everybody that's not fair like, we want to be a, a part of of that as well and it's a big income our former Prime Minister Stefan Levien as he started his leadership he just really made it clear that the weapon industry is a, is a big part of Sweden. We have a lot of industries, but one of them is that, and it's a part of our welfare system. And if you don't want to have that, then we're going to feel it in our welfare system, like blaming people of, of having to take a stand. Are you against the weapons? Then maybe you, you're not going to get any health care or something like that. And also they're using it, it's claimed, as one of our parts in the neutrality that we actually can sell to different countries that maybe then also share the same opinions, us being a neutral country. So yeah, there's a lot of things to say about also, Sweden saying that they're a feminist, the government now are calling themselves a feminist government. And especially when they talk about foreign policy, they say that they have foreign policies that are the most feminist. I don't see how that really matches the weapon industry and that export that is a big part of it. We don't even say that we're not allowed to export to dictators and things like that. It's not so restrictive as one would think. My take on it is as well that I think that we shouldn't have any sort of export on it. But you'd think at least that there would be some more criteria to who you export to. Yeah, it kind of reminds me how the the U.S., I think the U.S. supports 75% of the world's dictators. So whenever the U.S. claims that we're pro-human rights, I find that funny in a very, very dark and morbid way. But you mentioned, and of course, you were part of the Feminist Initiative Party in Sweden. And we hear this in the United States a lot, too oh, Sweden's so feminist and progressive. And this is also something that you hear in the U.S. with regards to war, like, oh, we have to go to war for feminist reasons. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we have to mm-hmm. save the women in Afghanistan or something yeah, as yeah, if we yeah. were ever asking the women in Afghanistan if they wanted to be saved by U.S. military. Exactly. But I'm curious, particularly from that feminist perspective, can you talk a little bit about this push to join NATO and Sweden's militaristic stance in general and how that totally clashes in your, in your mind? The feminist initiative had its biggest growth in 2014, and it, during that time, everybody was saying that they were feminist. All the parties were talking about it. So even the word feminism, you know, really had its big day during those years, 14 and, and some years after. That's why also the current government say that they're a feminist um, government, which like a government before hasn't said. But now it's not really used with those arguments. I haven't really heard the, the argument of feminism as much now when it comes to NATO. I mean, some people, it depends on who you talk to and things like that, but it's it's more it's more the nationalistic arguments that are coming up more. We've noticed that during COVID as well, that it was a lot of like, you know, people were wearing all these flags and to show that, you know, we're one country, we need to unite. And now that flag is like just continuing and ha- it has different, you know, messages, but now it's, it's, it's more of like, we have to save our borders. It's also mentioned as a way to be solidaric with other countries that we have to take a more clear stance on it and actually be a part of it and not just say that we're, we're neutral as we're not. And then let's just be a part of it anyway. It's more of the nationalistic arguments that, that are raised more than the feminist. The feminist initiative and other parties that are against NATO, like for Sweden, the Green Party and the left party, they're saying that they're clearly against. And they're also blaming the government now for their hypocrisy when it comes to especially their foreign policies of like oh what happened with the feminist stand that you had and wanting to be this peacekeeping country and especially we know that the people that get hurt mostly during war are also uh, women and children 
and you know what happened with that you can take it from any sort of angle i hear that i mean i've tried to listen to things as much as i can but like half of the things that are are being said at the moment that's just uh, lies our prime minister had the speech when they were going to vote for nato and she tried to sort of say that you know i understand that this is a it's a tough time some of you guys might be against and that doesn't mean that you don't that you love sweden less and some of you guys might be for and that doesn't mean that you're for having wars and things like that so it's hard for people to sort of like argument for why so why are we doing this like you're saying that we're we're threatened and but you're also saying that we're not under threat so what's happening exactly and also a lot of people are really sad that our first female prime minister is also the one that has taken the sort of decision so there's a lot of critique against that as well and like the white feminism of what what it actually means to have a female leader that it's not just enough having a, a woman as a leader i mean we saw that with margaret thatcher and we're seeing it again and it also reminded me of back in 2016 when hillary clinton was running and my throat was going dry just continuously saying the kind of woman matters a woman is not enough up until recently the ceo of lockheed martin the biggest weapons manufacturers in the world was a woman mm. and she was quoted mm. on a mm. phone call to investors as saying when we were pulling troops out of iraq she mm. was on the phone with investors and she was like don't worry we're going to make sure that there's plenty of unrest in the middle east for the foreseeable future. Like literally just saying, don't worry, we'll make sure that there's more war so you'll make money. Well, that's a woman, so I guess hooray for that. I mean, like with Madeleine Albright, with the things that she's done to, to actually bring a lot, of, a lot of darkness to a lot of people's lives and also literally people dying and saying that, that it was worth it. That says it all. Like we have Le Pen in France. And I mean, there's a lot of examples of it. So yeah, I wasn't one celebrating when she got elected in Sweden because I just, knowing what the, the, the politics that, that she wants to have, it's not enough. There's a lot more that goes into governing than whether you identify as a woman or not. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about, because you've obviously been inside government in Sweden, and I think that most of us see things from the outside uh, and you can see things from the inside. So I'm curious how you've seen this push towards NATO growing since you were part of the government, because it seems to me as somebody who was on the outside that it kind of like popped up out of nowhere and like in headlines and things. But I'm curious how you were seeing it from the inside. Well, I just need to make it clear that the feminist initiative hasn't been a part of the government. We don't sit in the parliament in Sweden, but we, we sit in a lot of different municipalities, meaning questions around school or around health care. Not so much when it comes to security and then for foreign policy. But I mean, especially since I'd say 2014, when Sweden went, went into this new agreement that we'd do more and what, that we'd welcome more of the military exercise in Sweden. I think a lot of people were raising their eyebrows. Why are we doing this? I thought we were not wanting to be in, in NATO, but we're still doing all these things. And just slowly and slowly, these things have become more clear that there was maybe another agenda. Uh, at the same time, we have this security minister that said he was really against it. And now he totally flip-flopped on that. So I think, especially when it comes to the social democrats, I think most of us were sure that they weren't going to go into it. But seeing also putting more money into... The military that we've we've seen more and more that a lot of people have also criticized Sweden for not having the budget for the military isn't high enough and things like that. The military the last years have been more and more on the rise and more and more the parties, even like the the, the Green Party and the Left Party have been really pro to, for, for Sweden to have more weapons on the ground. 
it doesn't mean that it's always wrong to be a part of something wanting to to protect people things like that but you don't know what sort of leader you have and what that leader wants us to do and you know wanting us to send people to to our neighbor country or whatever country doing things that today is happening that are, I would not say are democratic or are something that really make countries, our country or that country that we attack more progressive. It's just a way to put a position and saying that we're, you know, making sure that they know who's the boss sort of. Uh, and that's a big thing of what NATO always does. It's, you know, making sure that they, you know, they want to, with their position and but hopefully if they can make have a position in, around the whole world then you know they've conquered yeah it's like so, kind of an extension of u.s imperialism in that way yeah it is yeah definitely You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. Eleanor Goldfield will continue her conversation with Farida Abani after this brief musical break. Stay with us. spoken about this before publicly with regards to your personal experience in relation to NATO. So we had this uh, demonstration during this weekend and I talked about it and I, was, I also wrote a post about it on, on Facebook recently. I have a background from Libya. I was born there and I, I moved to Sweden when I was four years old. And there's been a conflict, uh, a war in, in Libya since 2010-11. Our former leader there Muammar Gaddafi, he uh, sort of flipped, or I don't know what you want to call it, uh, against the people that were protesting against uh, the leadership not being democratic and wanting things to change, which led to people dying and, you know, a lot of wars within the country. I was in in Sweden at the time because this is where I live. Like a lot of people from abroad, like looking and having contact with cousins and family, like worried about what's happening. What, how are you guys doing? Like, when is this madness going to end? You know, we were just like more like infuriated with what we what the leader was doing, the, the Gaddafi and uh, how the people were suffering from it and just wanting it to end. Because especially being abroad, you just you, you have no control and you just don't want anybody to be affected and you just want everything to end as, as, as fast as possible. But also being positive for, you know, people protesting and wanting things to change because I myself wanted that to happen as well. Uh, So I was happy that things were happening. But also, I mean, the protests were really shot down really fast. So people weren't really uh, allowed to protest. It was really like a risky thing to do. So anyways, uh, and things escalated more and more every week. Or like I was following this, like, you know, by the hour. So they came to a point where, you know, the world needs to intervene. We can't just let let this guy do whatever he wants and, uh, you know, let the people suffer. Like, why are people just watching it? Like, as we all can feel when we see different, you know, like now in the situation in Ukraine or in Afghanistan and things like that, you know, want it, just wanting somebody to just do something. Like, how can we watch this and like have it in the news and have maybe reporters there, but like not having anybody do anything about it? 
and then NATO went in and Sweden was a part of that. I was positive. I was like, well, something needs to happen. And of course, I mean, people have been affected in different ways in different countries when 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 like NATO go, goes in and I, a lot of civilians and things like that that you can't sort of ignore uh, or so uh, anyways when that happened I was positive because I just wanted it to end I wanted him to to not be the leader anymore and a lot of people were happy when he died because as a lot of people can feel with other leaders like oh well thank god now we can maybe breathe now maybe we can have new times now things could change but yeah now we've seen that it hasn't changed things are chaotic and having to think about these things afterwards of like well why did they go into libya and not to other countries you know we know there's a lot of countries that you know could have international intervenance but they're not having that you know because they're not interesting enough to, to actually go in and intervene and libya is one of the countries when, when it comes to our our uh, gas and oil reserves it's a really interesting country when it comes to that it's 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 a rich country when it comes to that so it's been also a higher risk of, of conflict because of that both inside the country but also outside of the country because a lot of people want to have a part of that money uh, and, and oil um so that's just shown that it's these things aren't so easy. It's really complex. As a person that maybe sees themselves as a peace person, you also want things, which I understand. Like looking at fin- people in Finland being the next to the border of of, of uh, Russia, being really afraid, or people in Ukraine, you know, just wanting people to to do something and you know bomb Russia or whatever, just to to have things end. But we also have to have the long perspective perspective of it, of like the people that are doing these things aren't always democratic. Uh, they're not, you know, what are their intentions? Why are they doing it? What is the longer plan? Is there a longer plan or not? I mean, there hasn't been a longer plan when it comes to Libya. So we're just seeing these proxy wars that are affecting people and nobody is really interested of having them end. That's a part of my journey of like changing stands on it and also just to show that I know it's complex and that's why we need to not just take a decision, one thing that just happened and really fast, that we need to think things through as, as much as we can. As they say, truth is the first casualty of war. I think nuance is probably up there too. Understanding the context and complexity of a situation. And when you were talking, I was reminded of a, a quote by Eduardo Galeano, who was a Uruguayan writer, who said, anytime the U.S. intervenes in a country, they either turn it into a graveyard or an insane asylum. And NATO being part of the U.S. empire, I think that that holds true. Thank you so much for taking the time. But also I wanted to ask, as a Swedish American who has my mind and my soul in both places, I just get so angry watching what Sweden is doing because it feels so much like bootlicking of the mm. U.S. empire. And there are very few Swedish politicians who are standing up against what's going on. One of them is the party leader of the left party, but she's like one of the few people where I'm like, thank you. Thank you for just saying that. I feel like so many mm. Swedish politicians are just like, yes, United States, whatever you'd like, United States, what can I get mm. you, United States? Mm. And I'm just curious, like, why do you feel that is? And what can Swedes do to combat this sort of just going along with U.S. empire? Every country needs to think about that. I could just go back again when I think about the 9-11 and also being a Libyan and knowing what we were a country as well, that we had a lot of sanctions against us after the Lockerbie and... I remember me being really like 
Oh, I went to school, I think it was like ninth grade or something. And I, uh, and it was the 9-11 uh, attack. And I remember I was like, just trying to talk about imperialism and all these things. But also, I mean, being sad of what actually happened, just to make that sure and clear. Uh, but also for us to have like, why aren't we having like a quiet moment when it comes to other countries, you know, attacks and things like that. I was just making that discussion and I was really criticized by people I mean because you were asking like why aren't people saying anything and you know I was in ninth grade and I had a teacher in another class because who had heard about me saying this because another student has had asked him like well why is free day not so solidaric with Americans now during this crisis or during this you know sad time and which is also like taken totally out of context because it wasn't me not being sad because I mean I cried when I heard about it and I saw the footage I mean who wouldn't because I mean just a few weeks earlier there was a lot of killings in Palestine and I was like you know why aren't we talking about that We, we shouldn't compare all these things but I think it's also valid to, to compare so when I did that the teacher was calling me in front of all these students like me ninth grade goal oh, she's stupid you shouldn't think like you shouldn't follow what she's saying and you know she's from Libya so they're so you know brainwashed of what's happening in their country and all these things I mean that's what happens today if you talk about these things if you just talk about imperialism people can't do that anymore it's also like talking about capitalism all these things you're going to be criticized you're going to be seen as a as a wacko person. So it's a scary time when it comes to actually being able to talk about the connections. That's why we're like most of the people in Sweden are just talking about Turkey. They're just like, well, you know, we can't be a part of this NATO, the people also that are against, because, you know, there's Turkey that is involved. And like other people are like, well, yeah, well, America is also involved. And do we actually want to be a part of the imperialistic project that America is doing? And people are also saying like, well, well, there's a risk of maybe Trump being the next president. And, you know, that do you want to be a part of NATO where Trump is the president? And it's like, who cares about Trump? It's enough of Joe Biden or the people that were there before him, you know, and the shit they did. The horrible things that they've done in the past and in the present. Just talking about how immigrants are, are being not respected in, in the States and also abroad. It's horrific. And it's not like a country that I think that Sweden should want to want to brag to or having being their best friend and like now i'm just seeing the different interviews in the newspaper talking just about like how how the prime minister and other people are saying like well our relationships with america are at their best and things are we're really close and we're just looking forward to having it even closer and they're just like so excited to, to having this bond become even closer also knowing that this is a country that hasn't ratified so many conventions some of the fields that they have ratified also gone against them, you know, and the Iraq war and all other, uh, one just comes to Afghanistan now, just recently, there, there's so many war crimes that this country has done. And I'm just ashamed that we can't even talk about it. And all we hear is how amazing it is. And I know, I mean, we're so, you know, also we consume so much of the, the American culture. We know everything about America that you guys sort of know, because we know more about America and New York than we know about our neighboring municipality in Sweden. That's how it works. We don't care about them because they can look at their own news, but we were totally consumed about you guys. It'd be really hard for me to even go to the States because there's like these things of like, if you've been born in an Arab or Libyan, like Libya is one of the countries on the list that is not allowed in. The list can go on and on. But on the question of what I think about it and what we can do against it, I mean, we just need to be brave enough to actually say these things and not just 
let Trump be the only fear of America or, you know, even even when Trump was the president, it wasn't like Sweden didn't have a lot of bonds or a relationship with America. So, I mean, we've already, already shown in the past when Trump was the president, Sweden was uh, still in, in really deep uh, relationships. So I don't know how that would actually change things. So we just need to be brave enough to continue to raise awareness of what war crimes all these countries that we want to be a part of have done. But also one of the key, really good things, one of the people said in the demonstration this weekend, a professor, he said that we need to also think about our role in the world and what we're doing with how we've been involved in different military exercises and, and other war crimes, but also our export of, of weapons. We need to ask ourselves the question, who saves the world from Sweden? We're not just asking ourselves, how are we going to be saved? And criticizing Turkey or, or you, the USA, but we also need to criticize ourselves. And we're not, we're not the best at doing that because we're, we have this view of ourselves that we're so neutral, whatever that word means. I'm, all, I'm also against neutrality because I don't think it exists. So that's just wrong in itself. But also the, the fact that we're so peaceful and that we're not involved in anything and that's just them, them, them. Whatever we're doing, there's an there's an explanation to it. But whatever whatever other people are doing, there not there's not an explanation. And then we need to just criticize that. So both criticize others, but also be aware of what what mistakes we're doing and continuing doing that all the time. Uh, and if we think we've done it enough, then we need to do it even more. Very uh, well put. And I, I mean, the 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 show is called Project Censored, and so the the goal is to uplift people who are censored whether that be in, in ninth grade or currently. And yeah. of course, recently in the United States, we saw the censorship of a lot of anti-imperialist and anti-war voices, including mm. Lee Camp, who I, I do a podcast with and was basically shut down by the United States government. So hurry mm. for free mm. speech. And, and so it's, uh, it's, it, this is the kind of solidarity that, that needs to be built, solidarity across these fake borders, working with people who actually want peace and are mm. legitimately anti-war and anti-imperialism. Thank you so much for taking the time, Farida. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. Thank can you, you let these folks know where they might be able to follow your work or or see more about what you post and what you do? Uh, well, yeah, I have an open Instagram. So it's called Farida Labani. When I left politics, I tried to just chill out and just take walks and stuff like that. But then things, <laughs> things changed. And so I'm trying to post a bit more stuff. I'm not that active, but from time to time, I post things and sometimes in English, sometimes in Swedish. So I'd say an Instagram is, is the best to follow. Free Dalabani. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, good luck with this. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacific Radio. That was Eleanor Goldfield talking with the former leader of the Feminist Initiative Party of Sweden, Farida Al-Abani. Next up, I share a conversation I had with attorney and author Charlotte Dennett. We spoke recently about her new book, Follow the Pipelines, uncovering the mystery of a lost spy and the deadly politics of the great game for oil. Stay with us. You got to work for peace. Peace ain't coming this way. If we only work for peace, if everyone believed in peace the way they say they do, we'd have peace. The only thing wrong with peace is that you can't make no money from it. The military and the monetary, they get together whenever they think it's necessary. They've turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet into a cemetery. We got to work for peace. Peace ain't coming this way. We should not allow ourselves to be misled by talk of entering a time of peace 
peace is not the absence of war, it is the absence of the rumors of war and the threats of war and the preparation for war. Peace is not the absence of war, it is the time when we will all bring ourselves closer to each other, closer to building a structure that is unique within ourselves because we have finally come to peace within ourselves. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning parts of the planet into a cemetery. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. For the last 150 years, oil has become a crucial ingredient for economic, military, and political power. Henry Kissinger, protege of Nelson Rockefeller, once said, you control the oil, you control the world. Well, the Rockefellers, the leading oligarchs of the 20th century, were actually chronicled in today's guest's earlier book. We're speaking with Charlotte Dennett, her earlier book with Gerard Colby actually chronicled the Rockefellers, and they have known all along that you can't be a superpower unless you control the oil. Well, today on the Project Censored show, we welcome back Charlotte Dennett. Her new book, Chelsea Green, is called Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game of Oil. In it, Dennett basically predicts the war in Ukraine and how it could become the mother of all energy wars if the U.S. and NATO troops intervene, risking nuclear confrontation with Russia. And of course, that's going on right now. But today, we're going to talk to Charlotte Dennett about this fascinating history. Charlotte Dennett is an investigative journalist and an attorney. She described her campaign to prosecute George W. Bush in The People versus Bush one lawyer's campaign to bring the president to justice and the national grassroots movement she encounters along the way. Dennett co-authored with her husband and fellow investigative journalist Gerard Colby, Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. Charlotte Dennett lives in Vermont with her husband, and today we're talking about Charlotte Dennett's new book, and Charlotte Dennett, it's been a while since we've connected, and today we're talking about Follow the Pipelines. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. Oh, great to be on it. Good to see you again. It's been far too long, Charlotte, and you've been busy, of course. This is a fascinating book, by the way. Part history, part mystery, part memoir, and of course, big part geopolitics. So tell us about Follow the Pipelines, Charlotte Dennett. I have been watching the endless wars ever since Bush had his troops invade Afghanistan and Iraq. And I became very disturbed. It was very clear to me that the war in Iraq was about oil. And I came to discover that there was an oil and pipeline connection to Afghanistan as well. The person who tipped me off, ironically, was Ellie Smeal of the Feminist Majority. She had read I Will Be Done. So I saw her at a meeting in 2000, a feminist get-together, and she said, Charlotte, do you know what's going on in Afghanistan? And I said, well, I don't know, sort of. And she said, it's all about oil and missionaries. 
So that intrigued me. I got a hold of Rashid's book on the Taliban and oil, and he had a wonderful map that showed a pipeline project that was going to extend from Turkmenistan and the Caspian Sea through Afghanistan and on through India and Pakistan is called TAPI, T-A-P-I. And in reading his book, I learned that the Taliban were all about protecting that pipeline route. In fact, Unical, which was the oil company, the American oil company interested at that time, had feted the Taliban. And George W. Bush even invited the Taliban to Texas to discuss it. Anyway, long story short, the relationship soured right around 9-11. The U.S. asked the Taliban to turn over Osama bin Laden. They said they would not do it unless the U.S. provided proof that Osama bin Laden was responsible for 9-11. The proof was not offered. And the next thing you know, the U.S. sends its troops in. And one of the things that happens is I have a map that shows that the main areas where military posts were set up were along the pipeline route, and that the Taliban had originally been thought of being the fiercest warlords in Afghanistan, allegedly. They were to protect the pipeline route. As it turns out, that didn't happen. The Americans moved in. The Canadians, in particular, were protecting that pipeline route. And today, believe it or not, those negotiations are back on, which gets you really wondering. So is that what the war in Afghanistan was all about? I found a quote from a State Department person who said that one of the reasons for that pipeline was, quote unquote, so the energy could flow south. So that is how I initially got into this whole follow the pipelines. It's a fascinating story, Charlotte Dennett. And of course, it goes back further than that. It goes all the way back to your father and the early parts of the Cold War. You begin the book tracking Tapline and then seeking truth, finding oil, and you tell the story. Your father was in U.S. intelligence. Can you tell a little bit about that story and how that kind of kicks you off? And you go through the whole Cold War. I have been investigating the death of my father for decades. He was the head of counterintelligence for the Central Intelligence Group, which was the immediate predecessor of the CIA. He was stationed in Lebanon, where I was born, and his last mission was to Saudi Arabia. And the purpose of that was to determine the route of the Trans-Arabian pipeline. And I had access not only to his last report, but his last letter home. I found those in a trunk in the attic. And then I sued the CIA through FOIA and got some of his marching orders, which originally was with the OSS. That was the Office of Strategic Services in 1944. So the key thing, first about the declassified document, which was heavily, heavily blackened out, but there are a few lines left open. And one of them said, we must protect oil at all costs. And that was the Saudi oil. And then reading more about Tapline, I also discovered a fantastic article in the New York Times, March 2, 1947, which was headlined something like pipeline ads to Middle East issues and concern about Russia. And that 
is the beginning of the Cold War, really, that far back. That was in 1947. So then I looked more into it and I learned the incredible intrigue about that pipeline, not only from the Russians, the Russians were concerned about it. They were a new kid on the block like the Americans. They aspired to get into the Middle East and the oil, just as the Americans had successfully done by getting a, a unique concession with the Saudis. And it was such a rich load that all sorts of large powers wanted to get at it. What I learned from my father's papers is that he wasn't spying on the Germans when he was sent over there because they were already gone. This is in 1944. He was spying on our allies. He was spying on the British, the French, and the Russians. After the war, they all wanted to get at this oil. And what the oil did is that it helped secure the Marshall Plan for the reconstruction of Europe. And the whole idea was to replace communist-controlled coal, replace it with American oil. And here's that story that continues throughout and brings us right up to Ukraine with an effort to wean Europe off of Ukrainian natural gas. But to come back, that, that was how I got started. And then I applied follow the pipelines, particularly during the Bush years and afterwards. The history is pretty significant. Going through Egypt, going through, of course, Iran. You talk about the overthrow of the Shah. We have the 1953 overthrow of Mossadegh and then the bookend of that with the Shah of Iran. And again, this is all the backdrop. And this is, as you write in your book, this is all about geopolitics and control of, of oil in the Middle East. And then you follow it through Clinton, then we get into 9-11. I mean, again, you have this whole thread running for well over half a century, and you're, you're tracing this to control of global oil reserves. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And by the way, there are 12 maps in my book. I love maps. They tell a story. You can't take it away. I remember uh, Naomi Wolf saying, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And if you look at those maps, they'll blow your mind. Also, by the way, I show that there was an earlier coup. The first CIA coup was in Syria, and it was in 1949. And my father's last report had identified problems with Syria because they did not want this pipeline to pass through Syrian territory and end up in Haifa, Palestine, soon to become Israel. The Syrians were nationalistic. They were anti-Zionist. Uh, they were also angling for higher transit fees. But the main reason is that they didn't want this pipeline to traverse Syria. So what happens after my father's death is that the CIA conspired to find a police officer who would replace the elected president of Syria, and they pulled it off. So that is the first CIA coup in Syria, which very few people know. And then it just continues, like you mentioned, Iran. And then I follow the pipelines and it takes it right up to the present. I do touch on Ukraine in my book, but not this particular war as it has unfolded. The Caspian Sea was an area of huge interest as far back as 2000. And in fact, there's an incredible report by RAND Corporation that talks about Caspian Sea and Ukraine. 
we can get to that later if you want, but there's a whole historical backdrop on this that helps people understand that all of these wars are energy wars. And I'm sad to say they're going to continue to be that as long as oil is the primary fuel of militaries, another little factor that's often missing in analysis. You go back to the Truman Doctrine, designed to shield Greece and Turkey from the Soviet Union. You go back, then the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947, the same year of your father's death. You also talk about that inquiry in, in, in uh, your father's death, and you believe that there was something foul there. Exactly. What happened? After his top secret mission to Saudi Arabia, he got on a plane to go to Ethiopia. And the purpose of that was to help set up a communications network for the Ethiopian airlines, newly founded, that would be controlled by the Ethiopians, but would be managed by TWA. And the purpose was because Haile Selassie, emperor, much resented Britain's control over Ethiopia. They controlled everything. They controlled the military, the roads, the airspace, the communications. It was a colonial occupier. So in come the Americans again, these upstart Americans. And the British were very unhappy about that. The Russians were too. They were scouting around at this time in Ethiopia. So the plane, what happened is it landed in Desi, Eritrea, and then it took off, headed for Addis Ababa. I learned that there was a previous plane flight a year earlier by a TWA uh, man who uh, took off, went in the same direction, and that plane crashed. I haven't been able really to find much more about that plane crash, but I found the accident report of my father, and they did not rule out sabotage in that. They said, we're still exploring that. It crashed into a mountain. Supposedly, there was bad weather. The parachutes weren't deployed. The seatbelts were not on. Uh, so there's mystery about that. But I was able to find out who's on the plane, and that's really significant. I mean, the petroleum attache was on the plane and a telecommunications expert along with my father. So this was a, definitely an operation. But the obituary, interestingly enough, didn't have any of that information in it. It said my father was on a vacation junket. So I knew that something was wrong there. And I eventually was able to talk to a CIA man who replaced my father in the area. And he admitted to me that it was a great loss. My father was an expert, a scholar in Islamic history. He knew the region really well, spoke Arabic. So it was a great loss. And then the CIA man says to me, we always thought it was sabotage, but we couldn't prove it. So that sort of vindicated my quest. And I just kept going. I take my investigation throughout the whole book as I'm examining geopolitical factors, which I think Americans don't apply enough. You know, the powerful do, but the media doesn't. This is why we need investigative reporters and historians like yourself, Charlotte Dennett. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored show. I'm the host, Mickey Huff, and we are speaking with investigative journalist and author Charlotte Dennett right now. Her new book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we're speaking with investigative journalist and author Charlotte Dennett. She is author most recently of Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, out now on Chelsea Green. And just before the break, Charlotte, we were talking about the death of your father. We were talking about geopolitics going back to the Cold War. Your book covers a lot of ground and a lot of history. Let's fast forward a little bit. I want to get closer to the present because you do talk about the connections that this has to U.S., NATO, Ukraine, the wars of the 21st century, not just the 20th century. But you talk about the 1970s. Let's talk a little bit about some of your investigative writing about Lebanon. Let's talk a little bit about the backdrop of Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan as we move up closer to the present. Could you talk about connecting these dots? Lebanon first. I was a reporter there in the 70s. I went back to Lebanon. My mother had died. And so I became a reporter eventually for the Beirut Daily Star. Actually, I was on my way up the airport road to see a friend and suddenly saw these tanks barreling down the road. And this was the beginning of the civil war in Lebanon. And I took cover in a school and I was able to be, quote unquote, rescued by a person who saw me there. I was one of the last to get out. And that kind of has an impression on you. I decided that I wasn't really clear what the civil war was about at the time. I didn't even know who was fighting. I suspected that the Lebanese who were favored the French being Christian. And I saw mirage planes flying overhead and bombing Palestinian refugee camps as one thing that made a deep impression on me. Also, my hosts, when I had been rescued, demanded to know what I was doing because I was writing a story. And they said, whose side are you on? Either you're going to tell us or, or you have to leave. There's this war going on outside. And I made a quick calculation as to where I was. And I also just told the truth. And I said, frankly, I'm for the Palestinians. I think that there's an effort to get them out of Lebanon. Whatever I said, they were happy with my response and treated me to dinner and so on. But that had a big impression on me. I eventually decided to go back to the U.S., sit out the, the Civil War for a while, which ended up 15 years. And then I went back in 2011. And this was just at the time when the Syrian Civil War was starting to happen. And I remember talking to an AUB professor who said to me, we're worried about what's going on in Syria, and we're worried it's going to spill over into Lebanon. And if it does, you haven't seen anything yet. And oh my God, look what's happened. Lebanon is totally flattened. Syria is in deep trouble. So now I can give you a geopolitical explanation for that part of the world. It's called the Levant, so named by the French after the east. The sun rises in the east, Levant. It's actually a very key piece of territory and was recognized as far back as my father's time as a very crucial corridor to be a terminal for pipelines. So the more I investigated, I found out not only did the Trans-Arabian pipeline terminate actually in Lebanon, not in Israel, there were two previous pipelines that had been built in the 30s that connected 
the oil of Iraq, the southern part connected to Haifa, Palestine, and the northern part terminating in, in northern Lebanon. And the more I looked at the maps, I began to realize that whereas in other pipeline maps where I could clearly see where military was posted along the route of the pipeline, it's like, like the Tappy one, I began to wonder, well, where is the military posted to protect pipeline? And it just suddenly hit me. It was not military positions. It was Israel itself. Even though the pipeline terminated in southern Lebanon, that's just very close to Israel. I would like to say a stone's throw away, but that was it. And, and I don't think most people realize that Israel was like the anchor for the United States to pull off all its geopolitical maneuvers in the Middle East. You know, through the Clinton years, if we could, you mentioned Unical Hamid Karzai of course, was a lobbyist turned political head in Afghanistan. The Clinton administration tried to negotiate pipelines and failed. But then, of course, 9-11 happened and the Bush administration utilized those attacks as a pretext to invade Afghanistan and be there for two decades. Could you talk a little bit about how that story transpired? And I wanted to get us closer to the present, if possible. In order to understand that, again, you have to go a little bit back in history. And in the late 1990s, you had the neoconservatives who were plotting about how they were going to have the America control the world as the world's only superpower. And you had the famous project of the new American century, which I think you guys wrote about. In fact, I think I cited your work in my book. Very important. So that was their aim. Once Bush got into power, then Cheney establishes his secret energy committee as vice president, and they plotted more about how to control the oil. So, of course, I've missed the, um, I did miss the, the Baku Tbilisi Sehan pipeline, which was built by the Americans during the Clinton administration to get oil from the Caspian Sea to Europe. But then the more the plotting goes to do TAPI, get that set up. Also, Iraq. Here's the thing about Iraq and Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu very much wanted to reopen the pipeline that had been built in the 30s and had terminated in Haifa. It was closed in 1948 with the Israeli War for Independence. He wanted it as finance minister to be reopened, and he actually bragged at the outset of the war in Iraq that soon the oil will be flowing to Haifa. There was just one problem. They had figured out that the person who was going to replace Saddam Hussein, who was totally against Israel, was a man named Ahmed Shalabi. And Ahmed Shalabi is the guy that came up with the myth of the weapons of mass destruction. And once that was revealed, he was discredited. So he never got to be the guy that allowed for the reconstruction of this pipeline. But I would wager they would still like to do it. And meanwhile, Israel has become more of a player because of the huge amount of oil and gas that's been discovered in the Mediterranean Sea. And so we're, we're set for more conflict over that. It's just mind boggling. 
Charlotte Dennett, that does bring us a little closer to the Obama-Biden administration and their geopolitical machinations, whether it be Libya, Syria. These are all continuations of Project Freedom American Century, highlighting a series of countries that they wanted to topple. And then, of course, now we have this situation that has developed in Eastern Europe with Russia invading Ukraine. How do you see this as punctuating this long thread of control for oil in the region? Well, for one thing, let's look at the people involved now. The uh, third highest person in the State Department is Victoria Nuland. Who is she? She is a neocon. She worked for Cheney. Her husband, Robert Kagan, was, was part of this project of New American Century. And what they've done is, in a way, sort of joined forces with people like Brzezinski, who is more of the neoliberal faction, to lie with the neocons if he saw that it completed Americans' vision of, of world control. So they're all set. They want to totally weaken Russia. And as we know, there have been uh, NATO encroachments getting closer and closer to Russian territory, provoking the Russians. And there were warnings way back. Even when Clinton was trying to make good with uh, Putin, it turned sour because of NATO's activities. And of course, Putin saw what happened in Libya. NATO invaded Libya, overthrew Gaddafi, and Libya was a major producer of oil. So there's the whole theme over and over again. The Ukraine battle, it will be the mother of all energy wars if it escalates even further. But now, here's the thing, it's blatant oil and gas connections, they're unavoidable. And the role of natural gas in fueling not only homes, but industries and factories and so on. So it makes the great game even more complex. But they don't talk about why Putin is focusing on eastern Ukraine. That's where the massive oil and gas is found there. And in the Black Sea, huge amount of oil and gas. And that part is not discussed. You cover decades of time. Is this maybe a last hurrah for this kind of, of energy resource? I would love to see it as a last hurrah. I was really hopeful. I mean, this war in Ukraine, though, what I'm seeing is, for one thing, all the oil, the frack oil, oil and gas companies in the U.S., they're going crazy, drilling away. Biden has had to concede that there has to be more drilling in case they can offset Russian clamping down on its supplies of natural gas to Europe, which has relied on 40% of their natural gas. So the Europeans are pressing ahead to find more alternatives. The Americans are not. Many of them are really trying to take advantage of this war to supply more fracked gas to Europe. And they are making out with profits now. They've recovered from COVID beautifully. What I'm seeing is drill, baby, drill. I would hope that all those advocates for alternative energy in America keep speaking up about it because otherwise we're just heading for a real disaster. And Charlotte Dennett, you see Ukraine as a reminder of the importance that oil is to its largest consumers, not we, the people, but the military-industrial complex. Yep, that's it. Sad to say. Maybe we'll have a new renaissance. I was hoping after COVID was ending that we would have a new renaissance, a new rethinking. Can't we just use this horrible period to reflect on what we've been through and, and vow never again, and it's time for solar and wind? That's what I'd love to see, but I'm not 
sure it's going to happen anytime soon. Well, we've been speaking for this segment of the program, investigative journalist and author Charlotte Dennett. Her new book is Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. And Charlotte Dennett, do you have a website or somewhere where people can follow you and your work online? Sure. First of all, there's a personal website, charlottedennett.com. I'm a lawyer, too, so go to the part where it's my writings. And I've also set up a website called Follow the Pipelines. It's just started, and it's focusing on Ukraine, but I want to invite other people to talk about pipeline politics in other parts of the world. So it will be gradually built out. If you want to contact me, however, you should go to charlottedennett.com, and you'll find my email. Love to hear from people. Thanks so much for joining us today, Charlotte Dennett. Again, that book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored Show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured paid for by taxing all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers and